You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Cade Metz, who is a technology correspondent for the New York Times and also the author of Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. Kate, this was a fascinating story for me. When I was reading it, it was it made me realize not only how recent a lot of these events were, but also kind of how deeply rooted in history a lot of this stuff is. And I think at the end of the book, you mentioned kind of the origins of the book and how you were discussing a completely different project with your editors and ultimately decided to write a book on people. And most of the books that, of course, I read and most of the people that I talk to in this space are focused primarily on, on the ideas. Your book discusses the ideas, but it really talks a lot about the people. What attracted you to the story of these people? And to what extent is the story, traditional story of misunderstood geniuses struggling against the odds and struggling against the misperceptions? You know, you've got, it was hard to find bad guys. You know, Marvin Minsky shows up as sort of the bad guy in the story, but what drew you to the story of these people, these intellectual heroes? Well, in my mind, any good story is about people. Any good uh, New York Times story is about people, even if it's also about technology. Any good book, to me, is really about the people. And my aim with a small story or with a large book like this is to tell a story about those individuals and then you can layer all those bigger ideas on top of that. These are really big ideas that are affecting us all. And I think the best way to understand that kind of thing is through everyday life, which we're familiar with, through people. And I really believe this strongly. The best way to understand those ideas are through stories like this. And where the book really got going is when, and it, this sometimes this is luck, when I discovered how interesting some of these people are, how funny some of these people are, how their stories wove together, came together, came apart, came back together again in real life. If I could get that onto the page, that type of thing can really work well when it comes to people really understanding these things. But it might be a bit of a harder story to tell than kind of the traditional narrative of either scientific genius or of kind of inventor genius, right? So if you're talking about Thomas Edison or Henry Ford and in their labs and the factories and light bulbs, everything here is really kind of happening in their minds and in these in the computers and in these kind of unromantic laboratories. And, you know, when we think of interesting people, usually artificial intelligence researchers don't usually crop up as the most interesting people. Did you have trouble spinning out the story given the arcane nature of the science involved, right? I mean, we're not talking about light bulbs and cars. We're talking about artificial intelligence. Well, yes and no. I think you're hitting on interesting and important things here. You're right. In some ways, this is a classic story, right? Someone who believes an idea, even though those around them do not, and they continue to work on it, and then it, and it comes good, so to speak. And you're right. That's what happens here. And that that is is something everyone can relate to, and it's the kernel of a lot of great stories. So that was in place. The other thing is that I understand your point about the arcane nature of this, that people might not expect these 
types of individuals to be interesting. And I wanted to show that the opposite is true. We were talking, you and I, before we came on air about my father. He was an engineer. And what I've often said over the years is that engineers are more interesting than you think. Engineers are people and they're not stereotypes. Just like anyone in any profession is, is a person and not a stereotype. And I think that if you get into my book, you see how fascinating a lot of these people are. And they're fascinating in such different ways. They're individuals with their own quirks and eccentricities. And those, in some cases, are very different than those of the person working beside them over so many years on this particular project. I fundamentally believe that engineers deserve to be written about, scientists, AI re researchers deserve to be written about just like anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what I wanted to do here as well. Well, what's interesting about this story is that it weaves its way back and forth between academia and industry. We have the key protagonists who have academic positions in NYU, University of Toronto, Montreal, and uh, other institutions. And then they're going back and forth between places like Google and, and Facebook, DeepMind and OpenAI and these places. And uh, I think part of the story is really the seduction of these scientists away from the academy. And, and there are a couple characters that really kind of put up a good fight and refuse to relinquish their position in, in the academy. And even the ones that do wind up going into industry kind of insist on keeping one foot in the academy. Is that also kind of part of the story, this tension between theory and practice, the tension between the pursuit of truth for its own sake and the pursuit of Mammon. I mean, these folks got very wealthy as a result of, of their work for these companies. Absolutely. You talk about the tension there. It, the tension is there, and it's not small. It is very large. You mentioned earlier there may or may not be villains here. Well, I think that there are certainly villains. You could argue the villains are the companies, right? The villains are these large forces in our world, which are economically driven. That is the real tension, particularly in the second half of the book. The way I I see it is you have these idealistic people, for the most part, who worked on this technology for decades. It never quite worked. And then it started to work and they were immediately sucked into, into industry. And you get these idealistic people in industry so suddenly, and even they don't realize what those forces are mm -hmm. and how they are going to take hold of their idea and push it forward in ways they did not imagine. And that, to me, is not only a tension, but a very large tension that we are all living through right now. You have this technology that is being realized in some very real ways, and then it behaves in these ways that even the people who created it didn't necessarily expect. And we're still struggling to deal with that. These technologies are working in ways that are very promising and provide a lot of hope for us in certain areas. And then they, they're also working in, in the same way in situations that cause concern. And you see the concern from even the people who invented it. Now, Jeffrey Hinton is really kind of the hero of the book, the, the main character, so to speak, and really the inspiration for almost everyone else in, in the book and in the field. And you begin the book with a little narrative about how he was ultimately brought into the private sector and how he was able to spin up a company, so to speak, very quickly and then auction it off. And so from a business perspective, I think a lot of people would find it confusing. How is it that these companies like 
DNN Research, which Jeffrey Hinton founded, how can they have any value, right? I mean, all of the techniques, all of the ideas, all of the methods, they're all public. They're all open source. They're all published in academic papers, available to anyone who wants to access them. And so why would there be a bidding war for a company, which is essentially just a, a shell that employs a couple of people, right? They're really bidding for the services of these folks, right? But their output is public. Is it just about being able to share the space with these people? Is it being able to kind of get just a little bit of an earlier access to the thought process of these theorists? Once again, you're spot on. It is not an acquisition of a company necessarily. It is an acquisition of three individuals. And these are individuals who had never worked in industry, really. You know, it's a professor in his mid-60s, two graduate students who hadn't even completed their degrees. Google and those other companies in the opening of the book are bidding for the services of those three people. That is what was valuable and continued to be very valuable even to this day as this story continued to play out. Google and those other companies bidding for Jeff's services need that talent because at that moment, there are so few people on earth who had worked in that area. We can get at the idea at the core of, of Jeff's research, the idea at the core of the book. It's called a neural network. It's an idea that dated back to the 50s. But by 2012, when Jeff is essentially auctioning himself off, there are few people on earth who know how that idea works because most of the world thought it would never work. And that's the dynamic there. And to this day, it's the talent that is valuable. We needed a lot of stuff for this to work. You need the data and you need the computer processing power needed to analyze that data, but you need the people to make that work. You know, as you see in the book, getting a neural network to work, some people describe it as a dark art or black magic, right? It's about sort of coaxing something out of this data. These systems literally learn by analyzing the data. And it's more data than you and I could ever wrap our heads around. So it's about sort of coaxing those machines to learn on their own. They do kind of take off in ways that are beyond us, but you need these people to guide them. And, and that's really what happened. And that's why the book begins the way it does, right? That auction set the stage for what would happen over the next 10 years. And if anybody thinks that being an AI re researcher is uninteresting, like read that opening. I couldn't believe it as I was reporting it. It looked like a screenplay. <laughs> I could see that scene coming alive in a movie, right? Yeah. And even in, in the moment, right, you see this in the book where Jeff turns to his students and they say, are we in a movie? What is going on here? Right. It's a very real moment that foretells a lot of what would happen over the next 10 years. Now, I was interviewing Stuart Russell recently, and we were talking about the AI winter, right? And there actually, I think there are a couple AI winters. And I think you go all the way back to, I guess, the earliest spring and, and talk about kind of how AI got started. And you go all the way back to the 1956 conference at Dartmouth, where a lot of the strands were, were beginning. And it seemed like back then, there were people like Frank Rosenblatt who were thinking about how to mimic the human brain and these ideas kind of hit a, hit a brick wall. And you talk about Marvin Minsky and you talk about how symbolic AI really was the, or sometimes I think people call it good old fashioned AI, right? Was the, became the dominant strain. How much of that was really about 
ideas and how much of that was kind of about politics and, and personalities. A lot of times I think if you're outside of academia, if you're outside of the sciences, you think that there, you have this kind of pure view of the best ideas win, but there's a lot of institutional frictions involved. How much of that was really about the people and the drama? It's a little bit of both. You're right. As usual, it's a little bit of both. I think what you need to understand when it comes to this particular technology is that there was a missing mathematical piece. Right, Frank Rosenblatt built a neural network in the early 60s, and it could do a particular task. It could learn to recognize printed letters. That's a relatively easy task. And he was able to do that with the technology of the day, right? The mainframe computers of the day. But the math was not strong enough to do that same thing with photos, for instance. Mm -hmm. It couldn't learn to recognize objects and photos. It couldn't learn to recognize the spoken word as he claimed that it would because it had this missing mathematical piece. So that was needed. But then where the personalities come in is that there were some people who thought because of this missing piece that it would never reach the point that it eventually did. On the other hand, you have people like Jeff Hinton who continued to believe and continued to think that they would find this mathematical piece. There were even points of doubt for Jeff and others in his camp. But then by the mid-80s, Another great moment in the book is when Jeff and a couple of collaborators do find this missing piece, and there's a new moment of promise for this technology. But along the way, you're right, you have these battles between academics, and people like Marvin Minsky ended up having the upper hand, right? Sometimes it's about who has the loudest voice and who can convince the Department of Defense to give them the money you know, for their particular project. And you do see the whole industry sort of shift to what you call good old-fashioned AI, that symbolic AI, where you're basically putting engineers in a room and they define how the technology is going to work rule by rule, line of code by line of code. That became what people had the most hope for, right? That would be the future and not these systems that could learn on their own from data. But then decades go by and things shift. And that idea was backpropagation, right, that Jeff came up with. And Jeff, he said old ideas are new, right? And uh, in these old ideas that have been abandoned, there's a nugget of something which can be harvested. What kind of personality is required for that kind of persistence, that diligence, that unwavering faith in the ultimate success of one's curiosity? I mean, Jeff is an interesting character. What was it about his personality which led to that success? And then also, in order to pursue a path that involves a lot of dead ends, you also need some institutional freedom Talk a little bit about the how he was able to continue down this path and hit all these dead ends until he was ultimately successful. You're right. It is about him personally and about his particular personality. And you see this in the moment that he first embraces this idea. He embraces the idea at the moment it is at its lowest point. Right. He's a graduate student at the University of Edinburgh and has just come to this AI field. And most of the world at that point had discarded the idea of a neural network. Even his own thesis advisor right, had abandoned this idea, had just recently moved on to that symbolic method you talked about. And yet Jeff still grabbed hold of that idea and did not let go for decades. So he had this fundamental belief, and that is what drove him. 
And I love that you mentioned this theme of his own lab, eventually at the University of Toronto. It was old ideas are new. And what that meant was it didn't matter how old the idea was. What mattered was had you proven that it wouldn't work? And if you had not proven that, then you should keep working on it, no matter how much time went by. If you got to that point where you proved it was wrong, then you could put it aside. But until then, you keep working. Well, and do you think his success it was in, in part due to being in what we might think of as the academic wilderness? I mean, look, University of Toronto is, I love that place. It's a fantastic university. But, you know, most of the heavy lifting in AI was being done at Carnegie Mellon and MIT and other places. To what extent was kind of being a little bit removed from the mainstream, was that a contributing factor to his success, you think? I think that's part of it. That's definitely the landscape, right? It was in the wilderness, so to speak. He wasn't at one of those big universities in the U.S. But what you also have to remember is that there was a time when he was at Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. And when he, along with his collaborators, published that paper on backpropagation, that missing mathematical piece, he was at Carnegie Mellon. Then he himself decides to leave Mm -hmm. because he did not, and his wife did not, want to take money from Ronald Reagan's Defense Department. He realized that the only way to continue working on this was to take that money from the military, and he and his wife didn't want to do that, and so he leaves. Again, it's this very personal decision. He himself decides to go to that that wilderness, as you call it. What's so interesting to me is that because he made that decision, the center of gravity for that idea that he believed in was there and not in the U.S. So when the idea starts to work, there's almost no one in the U.S. who's really working on it. The Mm -hmm. people who are working on it are elsewhere. They're in Canada, they're in Europe, there are a few other places. And so then when Google and Microsoft and Baidu and China wake up to the idea, they've got to go to these what would seem to be strange places for the talent. Yeah, and the other main character in in the story is is Jan LeCun. And I think he had a a slightly different history, at least after he came to the U.S., it was a little bit more mainstream working with Bell Labs and, and so forth. And in the book, you quote someone who said that Jeff Hinton was the fox and, and Jan LeCun was the hedgehog in this whole movement. What makes Jan LeCun the hedgehog of neural networks and deep learning? What that person who has worked alongside Jeff and LeCun is trying to say is that Jeff Hinton is an idea machine. And if you've ever spent time with Hinton, you see this. His mind works in ways that are always a little step ahead of your own, right? Even with his humor is so good, it's half step ahead of you. And he does see the world in a very different way and is constantly throwing these ideas out. Now, on the other side, you have Lacoon, and what Professor Malik, you know, who said that to me and is quoted in the book, is trying to say is that Lacoon had this one really big idea. It was, it was called a convolutional neural network, and it's eventually the type of neural network that really started to work with image recognition. Mm-hmm. And so what he is saying is that, you know, Jan had this one big idea that really paid off, and Jeff is this idea machine. A talk recently with Jan, and he sort of takes issue with this, right? He says, well, I have my own ideas, which is true. But the point there is that Jeff sees the landscape in a very different way. Jan is very much an engineer. And you see that when you talk to him and he's focused on the bits and the bites in some ways. 
Jeff has this almost ethereal way of, of looking at the world and taking you know these big ideas and then trying to apply them. And he's not necessarily interested in the bits and the bytes. He'll he likes to say, and this is part of his humor, but he likes to say he's bad at math and he's bad at computer science, right? I mean, that's not necessarily true, but that's generally true that he's about taking these big ideas and seeing where they're going to go and pushing them forward. And he's not an engineer in the way that Jan is. And now the first big practical application that came out of Lacoon's project was kind of check reading, automated check reading. You talk a little bit about it. And I remember back in the 80s, I guess it was, companies like Citigroup, they would send gigantic sacks of checks to Ireland at 5 p.m., on the flight to Shannon, and then all the Irish people would be doing all the, the data entry, right? Reading these checks and reading off the amounts and the addressees and so forth. And and of course, all of that has been replaced. And, and now when I teach in my fintech class, I talk about that transition to where you can just take a picture of the check with your phone and the whole thing gets taken care of on, on the back end. This is sort of a, a prototype of pretty much everything that we're doing right now, right? All of the automation is really built on the processes which were developed for that application, right? That's exactly right. And the reason this is important is that Jan's system, that convolutional neural network, that back in the 90s could read handwritten characters, including on a check, the key is that it learned that task on its own, so to speak. So the way that it worked back then is that Jan and, at Bell Labs, they basically got dead letters from the post office in Buffalo, New York. So they had all these examples of handwritten letters. And you show those examples to the machine. Mm-hmm. And the machine analyzes those letters. And it looks, you know, this is a, a neural network. It, it looks for the patterns that identify and define a letter E, for instance, or a letter B or a letter C, whatever it is. It finds those patterns, and in that way, it learns itself to identify a B or a C or a D. That is, in the long run, quicker than having those engineers in a room, and they're trying to tell the machine, rule by rule, what an E looks like. You're never going to get there that way, especially when it comes to handwritten letters, because you have a different handwriting style than I do. How are you going to write enough rules that define the way you do it versus the way I do it, the way everyone else does it. But if you can get all those examples and then feed them into a neural network and it can find the common patterns between all Mm -hmm. those different handwriting styles, that is super powerful. And that's what Jan showed in the 90s. Now, it would still take another couple of decades and a lot of work and ingenuity from people like Jeff Hinton and his students to really make that work with images and to be able to identify a cat in an image, for instance, in the same way, or to be able to identify the spoken word in the same way. But that's what happened. And and that's what you see play out in the book is Jeff and his students taking that idea and not only pushing it to the point where it worked, but then pushing it into industry, right? Jeff consciously did that. First at Microsoft, and then through that auction at places like Google. Now, whenever you're telling a story as an historian, I mean, I think of this actually as a work of history. It's recent, but it's still a work of history. I agree. And when you're telling a story, you have to choose between continuity and discontinuity. And I think you're, you know, you're telling us a bit of a story of a discontinuous leap in how we process information. 
But you also have character, I think it was Alex Krzyzewski who says, all I'm doing is nonlinear regression, right? All I'm doing is curve fitting. And when I teach my, I teach a course on, on data science and machine learning and techniques like decision trees and so forth, they've been around for decades. And so, you know, I teach everybody how to work with structured data. And then I say, oh yeah, and then there's deep learning. And that's just the same thing, except with unstructured data. And of course, trying to convince them that there's a continuity here. But of course, there's something very discontinuous. And I think that there was a quote in the book where you said, Nobody realized this could work. And then all of a sudden they realized, of course it can work. It's just that you need a massive increase in, in computing power. And so there was this rapid acceleration in the availability of computing power that happened right around the time when this was discovered. And, and kind of the defining moment, I think, that everyone looks back to as kind of the, there's that moment where Einstein was proven where they saw the, the curvature of, of, of space-time continuum was sort of the, the cat dog story, right? That was a real moment when ImageNet, you were able to show that you could distinguish between cats and dogs. That was made possible by all of this massive computing power, right? Yes, but it was also made possible one other thing, right? You mentioned ImageNet, right? That's the contest that Jeff and his two students won, essentially, where the whole world is competing to identify the dogs and the cats in these images. Well, ImageNet is also it's a collection of data. It's a massive collection of digital photos. That is also what was needed. We needed two things. We needed the massive amount of data to make this idea work. And then you needed the computer processing power needed to analyze all that data. And those two things came together. And you're right. This is different than what we've done in the past, right? You can compare it to other ideas and say, well, it's just this, it's just that. And as I said at the beginning of our call, it is just math, mm -hmm. right? It's just mathematics. But we're now at a point where the system is learning from a scale of data that we humans can't wrap our heads around. That's something different. People didn't see this happening. They didn't see the system working because it needed such large amounts of data to work. Right? That's a different realm than the machine learning from these tiny amounts of data that we can really wrap our heads around. So you did have this, this leap into a new area. And you can see this in the book, that the idea first started to work with speech, with Jeff and his students in Microsoft, and it worked remarkably well. It really changed speech. Even after it worked there, the people in the image recognition world did not think it would work with images. Right. You know, it's very telling. And even after it worked with images, the people in natural language understanding the effort to make AI really understand language and how we piece words together, they didn't think it would work there. And now it's working there. Right. I think it's illustrative. And now, of course, across the pond, there's a whole nother story playing out, right, with deep mind. The story of that formation I found interesting because Dennis Ahasibus said that you could choose between writing grants or you could do pitches. And why waste time doing grants when you can do pitches, right? So venture capital became the primary source for research funds, in a way, replacing the process that scientists would typically do, which is to apply to foundations and governments and so forth for grant money, right? Right. See, so there's that tension cropping up, right? Did Demis and his co-founders have a choice there? Are they going to go into the academic world, become professors and write grants? Or are they going to go into industry where the money's bigger and they can do bigger things with it? And they choose the latter. 
And that has implications, right? It does mean the technology improved at a faster rate, but then also all these other forces come in, including this kind of extreme optimism of Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. right, in the tech industry. Demis and his co-founders have their own optimistic outlook. Right? They believe that they're creating what they call AGI, a system that can do anything the human brain can do. Well, once Silicon Valley gets hold of that idea, then things really, really go in directions people may not have expected because Silicon Valley, in a way, took that very literally. And and you get to the point, even in the mainstream, where people are saying, this is around the corner, this type of machine. And that's not necessarily the case. So I think that is a fascinating moment when Demis and his co-founders go in that direction. And you're right, their story is equally fascinating to this other side of the story with Hinton and Lacoon. And of course, a lot of ethics comes up in, in the story, because especially when you think about AGI, and, and you tell a story about how Elon Musk and, and some others were funding OpenAI project, and the folks in, in London did not want their capabilities to be used for military reasons and so forth. But it's almost inevitable that at some point, this is going to be an issue, right? And at some point, there are going to be some difficult choices that they make. And it's almost impossible once you become part of a large corporation to try to decide how your technology is going to be used. Tell us a bit about that story and, and that tension and and ultimately how the players went about resolving that tension. This is one area where those two threads of the story, right? The Jeff Hinton thread and then the DeepMind thread, they come together, right? And this is what I was talking about. You have these very idealistic people. Jeff left the United States because he did not want to work with the military. Demis in London, joins Google and as part of the contract, he and his co-founders say, we want an assurance that you will not use our technology with the military, right? It's the same ideal. Well, not too long after that, Google, the company that acquired Jeff Hinton and acquired Demis Asabas and DeepMind, pretty soon it goes to work with the military, right? And those tensions come to a head. That was a very real thing. We're still trying to figure out how we're going to deal with it. I think that you're right. It's inevitable if you develop this technology, and certainly if you move it into industry, that we're going to move in that direction. Governments are going to be interested in that technology as a way of building weapons, and that is going to happen. Now, how is that all all going to play out? It's unclear. At Google, there was a big protest Mm -hmm. They actually ended up pulling out of this project, which was a path eventually towards autonomous weapons. They were building technology using a neural network that could identify objects in drone footage, right? So people and vehicles and buildings, that can be used for a lot of things, for surveillance, for reconnaissance. And eventually you put a weapon on your drone and it becomes an autonomous weapon. And that's what people are concerned about. Google actually pulled out of that project after the employee protest. But what's less talked about is that so many other companies continue to work on that, mm-hmm. including some very big internet companies, right? Microsoft was involved in that project. Amazon was involved in that project. Palantir, this new company built by Peter Thiel, by the way, the person who invested in DeepMind from the beginning, right? They're working on this. Mm-hmm. So the world is moving in that direction. I think you're right. There's still that tension there. And like there's tension in a lot of other areas in my book. Well, it's like Alfred Nobel, right? I mean, when he invented dynamite, he was horrified at 
the uses to which it would be put, but there really wasn't much he could do about it other than create the Nobel Peace Prize, right? With the profits that he made from the technology, right? Absolutely. You know, you, you talk about classic stories. Yes, these are classic stories that are coming back. And you see this in the book, how we repeat history over and over and over again. You talk about the AI winner and the hype cycles. It's funny how that just, it is a cycle. It just keeps repeating itself. And these old stories come back. And we, we're always creating things with these idealistic visions in mind. And then the reality is different. When you push them into the real world, things happen and they aren't always what you expected to happen. Well, if the cat-dog success was a defining moment, I think the other defining moment in this history was the triumph over Go, the triumph over the experts and the champions in in the world of Go. And you go so far as to say that not only was this a, a huge event just globally, but in particular, it was like the Sputnik moment for the Chinese because it happened on Chinese turf and they refused to televised the event, refused to publicize the event, lest the Americans get too much credit or the British get too much credit. Tell us a, a bit about that, because that really involved also a, a very different way of utilizing AI and developing high-quality decision-making. Well, yes and no. I mean, in a way, it's the same idea. The reason that machine was able to work is because of a neural network, right? The same concept. What they did is they applied it to game playing and Go in particular which is a game that's exponentially more complicated than chess. People didn't think that a machine would beat the best humans at Go for decades to come. Demis and DeepMind, however, built a system that did that in 2016. And it first did that in Korea, right? So you had this moment where they take their machine to Korea and they beat Lee Seedol, who was the best Go player of the last decade. And I was there for that. It was it was an unbelievable moment because you had this whole country focused on this match. And most people thought that the machine didn't have a chance. Well, the opposite was true. And you could feel the sadness envelop this country as this machine beats one of their favorite sons. And that was very real. Now, it also had this sort of bright side where he comes back and Mm -hmm. he wins the fourth game in this match, and it showed you the hope for this. And he really was learning from the machine Mm -hmm. in a a way. And then a year later, when Google takes this same machine to China and they want to show it off in China, and they see this as a way of getting back into the Chinese market, and you could see that phenomenon there too. So many of the best players in the world were there. And they had changed the way they played the game after watching this machine. Literally, even with the first move of each match, they changed the way they would open the match, mimicking this machine. That idea that a machine can help us was very real. But you're right, there's this other side to it, where Google is expecting this to be their coming out party in China. They're going to broadcast this match on national TV, and then something very different happens, and the Chinese government wakes up to what's going on here. They shut down the TV feed, and I was there. They sent this directive to all the Chinese journalists who were there and said, if you're going to write about this, you cannot use the word Google. Right? That's a telling moment, and it's right before the Chinese government really puts its stake in the ground when it comes to AI and says, we're going to go after this in a very big way. That's a real moment on, on many levels. One of the last developments in this area that you discuss in the book is the idea of a generative adversarial networks. And you talk about Ian Goodfellow, who is the GAN father 
right? And what I liked about one of the quotes is that what AI cannot create, it cannot understand. And so rather than simply processing information, rather than simply interpreting data, AI is, is moving to the point where it is creating things, right? Creating things that you can't distinguish whether they were created by humans or, or not. And so up until this point, I think the human role is just very important, even if it's just so far as you're labeling data and so forth. But the idea of these adversarial networks is, I think, it's an incremental step beyond what was being done earlier. Could you talk about how do people in the sector think about this? Do they think about this as a profound leap, something that opens up new possibilities? Absolutely. And I love that you quote Ian Goodfellow, who's actually quoting someone else or paraphrasing someone else, right? Richard Feynman in saying, you know, what an AI can't understand without being able to create, right? And again, these are incredible people we're talking about. Richard Feynman, you know, what a character. And then Ian Goodfellow in his own way. And that moment where he creates the idea of a GAN is one of my favorite moments in the book because it's so incredibly funny, right? People have the stereotype that engineers and scientists are somehow dour. Feynman was a... Didn't he invent it half drunk? Or like, <laughs> he thought right, of- <laughs> exactly. But also, you know, the way he, he relates the story is, is so incredibly funny. But you're right. It's, it's essentially taking a neural network and turning it upside down. If the machine can learn the patterns that identify what a cat looks like, it can learn to recognize a cat, but it can also learn to create its own image of a cat. And that's what's going on there, is you turn these systems upside down and they can create images, they can create sounds, they can create text. And that's what we're seeing now, is these systems are getting better and better at creating content. And that that's a powerful thing on many levels. And it's a scary thing on many levels. We live in this age of concern over disinformation. Well, these are means of creating disinformation, Mm -hmm. potentially on an enormous scale. And we're getting systems that can create images and videos and tweets and blog posts and entire articles that look like the real thing. And that's where that chapter goes, right, is real concern over GANs and similar technologies as a way of creating disinformation. Now, we're not to the point yet where the machines are perfect. A story I often tell is recently I was writing a a piece for the Times about these new systems. They call them language models that analyze all this text Mm -hmm. from digital books and the internet, Wikipedia articles, other content from the internet, and they learn the vagaries of language, and then they can generate their own language. They can generate tweets, Mm -hmm. like I said, and blog posts and I wrote this story and my editor said, all right, we really want to show this thing in action. Let's get it to give you a speech in the voice of Donald Trump. And I said, great idea. And let me tell you, we didn't end up using this for maybe obvious reasons, but this system out of the OpenAI lab in San Francisco called GPT-3 generated a speech in the voice of Donald Trump that you would not believe. I mean, it was just pitch perfect. Caveat there is, You have to roll the dice many times to get that, right? So if you ask for 10 speeches in the voice of Trump, you might get five that are really good. The other five are not. So there's a gap there. And when it comes to creating and distributing disinformation, it's not a real danger until it can do 10 out of 10, right? Then we're in trouble. Then the machines can generate disinformation at a scale that a handful of humans in a room never could. But we're on a path towards that. And that's why 
people like Ian Goodfellow do see this as a serious change that we as a society really have to think about. Are we going to get to the point where we have to think about anything we see online differently? We might get to that point. I think it would only strengthen the importance of curation, right? So something like a New York Times is only going to be, I think, more valuable in a world where you are surrounded by deep fakes and fake information. You're going to get to the point where you're not going to trust anything unless it comes from someone that you vetted. So the last thing, I think you do mention a lot of ethical concerns towards the end of the book. And one possibility that a lot of folks in the field have talked about is some kind of agreement as to what the acceptable bounds of the technological use are. And so everyone talks about the uh, Silomar conference related to genetics and so forth. And there have been some calls for a similar type of conference among AI professionals. Do you see in the community increasing concern around this or have people more or less given up on any kind of controls or has optimism about human nature prevailed? What's the current state of concern about the evolution of general artificial intelligence? There is real concern. And to the point where the AI community convened at the same place, out of Silomar, for a meeting along similar lines to discuss the concerns that AI could move in that direction. There was a, a meeting even before that, you know, funded in large part by Elon Musk in Puerto Rico along the same lines. And that continues to be a concern for a lot of people. Now, the rub there is that that group of people is looking at, for the most part, a system that will do anything the human brain can do, but more powerfully, and then eventually spin outside of our control and maybe destroy us. And the criticism of that mindset is that that is a long, long way off. And that maybe that's not what we should be focusing on now, but maybe we should focus on the here and the now, where there are already these concerns. Autonomous weapons we discussed, the disinformation problem we discussed. There's also the issue of bias in these systems. They can be biased against women and people of color because they learn from all this data. They learn from our flaws, essentially. There are so many other issues that we need to deal with today. And there's some overlap, right, between the two groups. You know, there's a lot of concern from the AGI camp on these other issues. But really, there are these concerns now that need to be dealt with. And that increasingly is becoming the focus. And the industry is waking up to this type of thing. We'll see how it all plays out, right? These companies still have a profit motive driving them, and they aren't going to be as concerned with those things necessarily. But there is a lot more concern in general, at least a lot more awareness of these issues. And I think towards the end of the book, you tell the story about how Jeff Hinton and Jan LeCun and Yashua Bengio won the Turing Award. And I was actually, I, I reminded me of how recent that was. It was certainly long overdue. Did it take longer for the academic establishment to recognize this than it took industry to recognize it? Well, I mean, this gets back to something else we were talking about is academia is it can get contentious, right? There were a lot of people who didn't believe in that idea. And there are some people who are still kind of bitter about the fact that that idea is getting so much attention. I think that might have played into it, right? Some people think that the neural network idea got too much attention in the press and that and they like to point out how limited it is. And, and you see that in the book too, with people like Gary Marcus, who were intent on saying, hey, look, this is a limited idea. It is. Certainly to this point, 
a neural network does certain things well. There are other things it does not do. But what I do show in the book and aim to show is that there are so many areas where it has really changed the trajectory of things, right? So there is this very real thing that happened in 2010, 2012, and it really changed things. And you can see that, certainly. But there are a lot of people who you know, are still reluctant to give the idea too much attention, think that Hinton and Lacoon have had too much light shown on them. So I think that there's a little bit of that going on. You're right. It did take them a while to win the award. Well, I think, Kate, you're not going to run out of interesting stories anytime soon <laughs> out here in the Bay Area. Thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate your reportage. Genius Makers, unputdownable story about a bunch of modern scientific heroes. Thanks so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.